Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Ask Shane Anything. And you know what that means? It means that the weekend is here. It means that if you've been busting your butt all week at work, it's now time to kick your feet up and play some games. Hopefully, you'll listen to this episode or watch this episode first. As always, I want to thank everybody who is pledging at $7 or more per month because of you guys, this show happens. Obviously, I want to thank all our patrons. Without you guys, none of this happens, uh, but particularly the ones who have decided to pledge at that higher tier to make sure that they get this weekly dose of Ask Shane Anything. We have great questions, and in fact, this week, I've decided to add an extra question to Ask Shane Anything. Let's get straight to it. Our first question for this week's episode comes from Mountain Lifter. Jedi Survivor launched buggy, and with a lot of performance issues, Reviews in general might mention launch issues, but should they or do they factor them into their final score? Jedi Survivor and Cyberpunk 2077 sit at an 8.6 on Metacritic. In both cases, it does not seem like the issues are factored into the score. Is this because of an assumption that they will get fixed? How can we discourage companies from launching games, especially PC ports, in bad states? Okay, lots of questions in this one. I guess I'll address first... Uh, Star Wars Jedi Survivor and Cyberpunk 2077's review scores. Now, here's what I would say. I played both of those games, and I played both of them on PlayStation 5, and I really didn't have many issues with either one of them. Um, you can go back and you can watch our conversations on Game Face about either of those games, and at least for me, I was pretty lucky, and I didn't really have any problems, and I think... That's part of the issue, and now we're looping to the end of your question, talking about PC ports. I think a big issue is, which platform are you playing it on? Now, I do think that that is going to clear up. As we saw at Not E3 2023, Xbox has finally decided to leave the Xbox One behind. PlayStation's dragging its feet a little bit more with the PS4. There are still some games coming for PS4 in the future. Uh, but what we're seeing is finally the changing of the guard. We're finally seeing the move over to the new consoles. That should clear things up. Um, because a lot of the time, the real buggy versions of these games, and let's be honest, Cyberpunk 2077, the problem was the last-gen versions. I played the PS5 version. It wasn't that bad. So... A lot of it has to do with which platform they were playing. Now, to your point, the PC versions of these games, in a lot of cases, are bad. And maybe more so with games that first launched for consoles and then later came to PC. To me, that seems to be the bigger problem. But you're right, it is a problem across the board. And how can we fight back to make the publishers start, honestly, taking PC versions a little more seriously? The big problem with the PC versions is that they just don't sell as well as the console versions. And so the publishers aren't as incentivized to make sure that those versions are bug-free and that the code is clean. Um, so maybe one answer is more people need to buy the PC versions, but that's not really realistic and that's probably not going to happen. So what else can we can we do? If you're a PC gamer, just stop buying the games. Or at the very least, don't buy the games until they've been fixed and cleaned up. So Again, to go back to an earlier part of your question where you asked if people are just assuming that the games are going to be fixed. I don't think so. Like, I really just think that whatever version they've played maybe isn't as buggy as some of the other versions. And maybe that's a problem with Metacritic. Maybe what Metacritic needs to do is aggregate the different platform scores into one overall score for each product. And then you wouldn't get the 8.6 for the PS5 version 
and you wouldn't get the 4.0 for the PS4 version, you'd get something in the middle. So maybe that's an answer to it. Um, but again, like, does Metacritic really influence sales of a game? I don't think it does all that much. Most sales for the game come in like the first five or six days it's on the market. I think a lot of people check Metacritic post haste after they've played a game to see if the reviews are kind of aligning with how they feel. It's a complicated question, and it gets more complicated too as games launch piecemeal. So for example, a lot of times we would do game evals, which we don't really do anymore. Um, but we would do a game eval, and a game would have no connectivity. There would be no online modes, there'd be no way that the game really connects and adds value for the player. And then it would be on us to come back months later, I'm thinking of Red Dead Redemption 2 here, where they finally add the multiplayer and it gets the multiplayer to a state where they're like, okay, this is it. This is what we promised you guys. Now, ideally, we would go back and we would update the game eval and then add in the score. In fact, we should probably still do that with Red Dead Redemption 2 because it would probably get the game close to like one of the highest scores ever on the site. Um, but it's just impractical and kind of pointless because nobody cares at that point. People have already decided whether they want to buy it or not. Does it matter that we now go back and adjust that connectivity score for it? I mean, for my OCD mind, probably. <laughs> and probably one little thing that's in the back of my mind that's driving me crazy that I don't even realize it is that we haven't buttoned that up. Um, but other than that, there's really no point in doing it. So I don't think there's an easy answer. And generally the answer to anything like this is how you spend your money. If you stop buying the PC versions, now there is some slight chance that they are just like, you know what, we're just not gonna do a PC version at all. But I would lean more towards, you know what, we need to clean up the PC versions of our games before we release them. Uh, because I don't think that publishers want to completely ignore the PC market. I think what they're doing right now is they're hoping that with minimal effort, they can still generate a lot of revenue from the PC versions. And that's wrong. That's completely wrong. So it's a complicated issue. There's not an easy answer. But as always, and I say this all the time, bet with your money. All right, our next question comes from Sifted Stalwart Zet Saber. I tend to go back and watch old review videos from all the game journalism outlets from 2007 to 2013. Do you think this is nostalgia or was games journalism better back then since YouTube influencers were not as prevalent? Okay, you guys know already how I feel about YouTube influencers and how I feel that there's no editorial checks and balances there. I've literally been banging that drum since the day I left game trailers and all this stuff started. However, you cannot blame YouTubers and influencers for a change in review quality from the traditional outlets where there is editorial oversight and there is an editorial hierarchy and there are people looking over the shoulders of the editors to make sure that they're doing things the right way. Um, that's on them. That has nothing to do with YouTubers, influencers, streamers, or anything like that. The quality of IGN's reviews, GameSpot's reviews, Game Informer's reviews, Eurogamer's reviews, Polygon's reviews, Kotaku's reviews, none of that is impacted by what influencers and YouTubers and streamers are doing or are not doing. They can still create great reviews that are valuable to people like you, Zetsaber, because um, it feels like you don't trust what you're getting from the YouTubers and the influencers, and I don't blame you. I wouldn't either. I'm, I'm not begrudging people who do. Like, if you find somebody who you feel like you really trust and they're your online spirit animal, you guys agree on pretty much every genre, I can understand where there's value in watching reviews from people like that. I totally get it. I haven't found that person. Maybe you have. Um, but to blame influencers and YouTubers for the current state of games journalism, 
I don't think it's fair. I think it's fair to blame them for what they're doing on their channels and if it's right or wrong and if they have, you know, millions of people that are following them and they're doing shady stuff, then they can be blamed for that, for what they're doing. But you can't blame them for what other outlets are doing. So do I think it was better? I mean, that's one of the questions you're asking back then. I think it was more reliable back then. Um, you do have more voices now, but I, I feel like sometimes those voices can cloud the overall narrative around a particular game. Um, like, for example, something that's happening right now is, you know, there's a certain segment of people online who are slagging Starfield because it's 30 frames per second. I would argue that most people don't really give a crap if a single player game is 30 frames per second or 60 frames per second. Multiplayer games, I understand a little more. Uh, shooters, I think a higher frame rate actually makes the game play better. If you're playing a single player game, if it's locked at 30 frames per second, I don't think it really matters. And I don't think most players think it matters either, honestly. But there's a certain segment of people online who have generated this, this anger towards Starfield and Bethesda because the game is locked at 30 frames per second on consoles. I think back in the old days, quote unquote, that wouldn't have happened. Truth be told, most of the real outlets look at things a little more on an even keel, a little bit more from a mature angle. Let's be honest, a lot of the editors working on these traditional publications are a little bit older. They have a lot more experience than these other people, and they, they've they already went through this. They know that you can see what's going to happen. Would I say it's better or worse? I think it's always better to maybe have more voices and more options, in your opinion, but... Do I think it's more reliable then or now? I think it was way more reliable then. I think if you a game came out and you had your five or six um, traditional publications that you trusted for the most part, game trailers, IGN, whoever, um, and you watched those six or seven video reviews, although back then not everyone was doing video reviews, so some of them were written. Uh, but I think if after you watch those six, I do think you had a better idea of whether you're going to like the game or not and whether you should buy the game or not than you do now. Because there's just... There's so many opinions now that a lot of times the only way you're going to get traction is if you're the contrarian. I know a lot of people accuse the one outlet that reviewed Tears of the Kingdom and gave it not a 10. And everybody freaked out about it. Everyone accuses them of like farming for clicks. And there's a little bit of an element of that. But when you're talking about there's like 100,000 YouTubers who are offering their opinion on a new game. And if you're going along with the crowd, it's really hard for people to notice your content. So there is incentive there to stray from the pack, even though you may not believe 100% that the game is bad and when everyone else thinks it's great or vice versa. Um, there is an incentive there to go against the grain, to publish something contrarian to what everyone else is saying. So I would say back then, Day one, day two, I think you had a better idea of whether you should buy a game or not than you do now because there's just so much signal noise. <laughs> Next up, we have a question from Joaquim Dragoon. Have you ever felt depressed and wanted to do something else other than gaming? What advice would you give someone and what would you do instead of playing? This is a great question, Joaquim Dragoon. I think everybody at some point in their life has felt depressed, has <laughs> not felt all shiny and happy. I just think that's life. Things happen. Look at the stuff that's happened to me since I've launched Sifted. We were robbed. Um, I lost my dad and my sister to a car accident. And through all of this stuff that's happened, I've had to just go right back to work. I don't think that's healthy. In hindsight, I think it was a huge mistake, but Sifted is still standing. Would it have been still standing if I hadn't have done that? I don't know. 
I would say his chances of still standing were would be far less if I hadn't have fought through the depression to come back to work. Um, I think at the time, I thought it was therapeutic to get back to life, and I would think, you know, what am I? What would my dad and my sister want me to do? And maybe I was just telling myself this, but I thought they would say, like, get back to life, get back to what you love doing. And again, maybe I was fooling myself into believing that. I don't know. But the truth of the matter is, is everyone's depressed. I've been depressed. I was depressed as an 18-year-old um, when, it, and it takes a while sometimes, when the full effects of my parents being divorced and being shoved back and forth between parents for most of my life. And, you know, I'd stay here for a few years, then I'd move with my dad for a few years, and I'd go back with my mom for a few years. That is not healthy. That's not good for kids. And I went through that. And so at 18, when every when I was becoming an adult and starting to look th- look at things from an adult perspective, it was hard for me to deal with. And I had to do some reckoning with my mom and my dad. And I had to go to them and be like, look, you screwed me up. Like, I need you to recognize that you screwed me up a little bit. And for my mom in particular, it was kind of hard for her to admit that. So look, I think everyone's gone through depression. Everyone is going to go through depression. Now you're asking me like, what do I do when I am depressed? Um, do I dive into games? No. Um, and that... I think in particular, that's the work part of this job is that you have to always be playing, even if you don't feel like playing. Like right now, I'm just coming off E3. I busted ass for a week on doing nothing but working on Game Face and curating stuff to the site so that you guys have awesome coverage of not E3. I haven't had time to play games because I've been working from the moment I get up until like 11 or 12 at night, 14, 15 hour days. I haven't had time to play games. So here we are Friday. I'm recording this like late morning or whatever. I have like three or four games that I need to play a ton of before Game Face on Tuesday. So we have something to talk about. So do I love games? I love, it's insane how much I love games. But there comes a point where you're like, man, (laughs) I have to play this game. And you know, some people, for example, may not be into horror games, but if you work in this business, you got to play horror games. You may not like some other genre. You got to play it. That's the work part of this. It's even me, which I've, I struggle to find other people who are as passionate about games as I am. Matt is one of them. He is definitely one of them. He is as passionate as I am about games. There aren't many people like us. Um, and I sometimes envy people who can just go out on a weekend and do whatever the hell they want. I, every weekend... I have to play games. That's just the way it is. I don't have enough time during the week with all the other stuff that's going on around the site to play games. So I know Saturday and Sunday, from the minute I get up until the moment I go to bed, I'm locked in. I'm either recording footage sitting in this chair, so I have B-roll for Game Face, or I'm out in the living room sitting on the couch playing games out there. It, I'm sure my wife is sick of it. Like, It's a deal that you make with yourself when you get into this industry, but I do think it's something that catches people off guard when they come into the industry. For example, we hired a couple editors at Game Trailers. Um, They were like the last couple people that we hired before everything kind of went to crap. And they struggled. Like, they thought that they loved games. But (laughs) there are levels of loving games. Like, you guys get it. You guys are all, you're like me. Like, if you're coming to Sifted and you're watching Game Face, you're like me, basically. But there's a lot of people that aren't. Like, a lot of the feedback that we get on Game Face from casuals is like, This show's two in the weeds. Like, they want a 10-minute synopsis of a game that gives up just enough details to tell them whether they should buy the game or not, and that's it. They don't want this very nuanced, more adult conversation around games. I get that. 
Um, you can build that if you want to, but to me at this point in my life, that would feel so vapid. So when I get depressed, do I want to play games? No. Like a lot of times I want to make music. I want to listen to music. I want to watch films. I want to do something more passive where I don't have to engage. And I've talked about before when I'm sick, if I have a cold or when I have COVID or whatever, um, I don't really like to play games. I don't want to engage. I want everything to just wash over me. And that's when I watch a lot of movies or I catch up on shows, things like that. Um, so to give advice to someone who's depressed, like I'll be honest with you, I don't feel qualified to do that. And we start talking about depression, like that's serious stuff that can lead to things that are very, very serious. So I'm very nervous about giving people advice around things like that, unless I know them personally and I know the situation very specifically. I know their family. I know the people who are involved in the situation that's causing the depression. It makes me very nervous to give people just blanket um, opinions or advice on when they're feeling that way. But one thing I would say is I think a lot of times when you get depressed, part of it is that you're trapped in a pattern. And I think subconsciously, your mind is saying, we need to break out of this. Um, and so one thing I would suggest is if you are feeling bummed or depressed, don't dive into the things that you're already doing a lot more. I feel like that becomes a rabbit hole. One thing I've found when I am depressed and I am playing games is sometimes I say to myself, am I trying to avoid the issue here? Am I playing games right now to escape something else that's happening in my life. And I don't think that, that that's ever healthy. So I guess one thing I would suggest is if you're feeling blue or you're feeling down, listen to some good music. I think that always helps. Talk to people. Don't keep it inside. Um, I think that helps a ton too. And you need to find confidants. You need to find people that you can trust to talk to that aren't going to go and share your problems with other people. And that can be difficult. I understand that. Uh, but most importantly, I think it's good to just break out of your shell. I mean, there's a saying online, go outside and touch grass. Um, I think that oversimplifies things a little bit, but I also think it's kind of powerful. Um, sometimes you just need to break out of the pattern, break out of the shell that you're in. And I think a lot of times that gives you a new perspective on life. Hi Next up, we have a question from Jay Lid. Let's see what he's asking. What do you think of Saudi Arabia and its investments in video games and tech? Is it ethical to buy or work for EA Games since Saudi Arabia owns over 9% of the company? Oh, Jay Lynn, this is a great question. It actually, I had to go and do some research for this one just to make sure that I wasn't talking out of my butt uh, when I replied to this. Um, my knee-jerk reaction is I hate Saudi Arabia <laughs> for a number of reasons. I don't hate the people of Saudi Arabia, maybe some of them, maybe the people who believe in what the regime is pushing, I would not want to be friends with, but I know there are millions and millions of great people in Saudi Arabia. So don't take that this is a blanket statement of I hate Saudi Arabian people or anything like that. I hate the leadership of Saudi Arabia. Um, here's the thing. You can't, if you're a publicly owned company, you can't stop this from happening. So look, if EA was a little company like sifted and it wasn't public, publicly owned, and look, if I were to take a huge investment from Saudi Arabia to actually finally have money to market Sifted and to finally have the money to buy a new TriCaster and to do all these things that we just don't have the money to do, you could rightfully call me out for that. And I would really have no recourse because to me, that would be selling out to terrible people. And that would never happen. <laughs> but if it does happen, I think you have a right to call out those companies. That's not what's happening with EA, though. EA is a publicly held company, meaning anyone can buy its stock. You can't stop them from buying the stock. Now, 
You can argue that EA's current shareholders shouldn't sell its stock if they knew that Saudi Arabia was going to snatch up the stock. It gets too complicated. And that's another problem is that you need to pick and choose your boycotts. Like, you can't boycott everything, unfortunately. Um, because you, then your whole life just becomes like this web of confusion where you're like, oh, wait, I need to go to Home Depot, but I don't like that Home Depot gave money to this political candidate or whatever. Like, it just gets... It makes your life hell. It makes you miserable. It makes all the people around you miserable. So I would say you have to pick your battles when you want to decide to alter your behavior or your spending habits based upon cultural or societal issues. Choose wisely. So that's the first thing I would say. Like, I don't think that we should boycott EA because Saudi Arabia bought 9% of its stock. Again, there's nothing that EA could do about that. So, and again, that's a unique question because they are a publicly held company and if it's a if it's not publicly held then yes i think you can maybe hold a company's feet to the fire for allowing saudi arabia to purchase a certain amount for example um the pga tour screw them <laughs> f them like there's no excuse the reason they did it is because they knew all the money coming from saudi arabia for live golf was so much that they couldn't compete with it so they're like up oh, you can't beat them join them i don't agree with that I think that there are enough Americans who are willing to stand on the hill of morality that they would not support Live Golf. I truly believe that. And why? Because Saudi Arabia is our enemy. Saudi Arabia is the enemy of America. 15 of the 19 9-11 hijackers were, were from Saudi Arabia. There were two of them, in particular, who moved to San Diego and were essentially supported by Saudi Arabia. They couldn't even speak English, yet somehow they managed to find a place to live and they managed to go to flight school. Where'd that money come from? We know where that money came from. So I don't know how some people can just forget about 9-11. I realize it was 2001. It was over 20 years ago. There's a lot of people who weren't even alive when it happened. I don't care. 3,000 Americans were killed in 9-11 and 15 of the 19 were from Saudi Arabia. Then you start talking about them murdering a Washington Post journalist because he was publishing unfavorable articles about Saudi Arabia and the, how that was all covered. I mean, I could go on and on about why I view Saudi Arabia as the enemy of America. So to answer your question, I mean, I think you need to be picky about the companies you go after and you need to do the research and that's annoying and that's a big problem too. A lot of people are too busy. They have kids, they have jobs, they have all this stuff going on. They don't have time to research this stuff. And I think that's a big problem just in general. And I feel like there are some people and entities that prey on that. They assume that people are never going to be able to find out the truth or they're not going to have the time to. And they, you know, they're like, we can do whatever the heck we want because people are never going to find out that we did it or whatever. I, it's really hard because so much is happening so fast and there's a 24-hour news cycle and some people just tune it out and I don't blame them. If I had four kids and like a job and a mortgage and all this crap, I would tune it out too. So it's tough. Um, but one thing I would say is that I think all Americans should agree that if you can, you should not support Saudi Arabia. So does it, is there this thing in the back of my mind now? Like when I play Madden or when I play Immortals of Avium here in the next like month or so, um, that, you know, this game was somehow supported by Saudi Arabia, maybe, but again, as someone who understands how things work, it's hard to place the blame on EA for that. Now, working at EA, that might be a different story, because now you know that it's owned, at least in part, by Saudi Arabia, so ultimately your salary is being paid 
by Saudi Arabia? That's a little bit of a tougher question. Do you work for these companies that are owned by China or owned by Saudi Arabia? That's that's tough. You know, again, at the end of the day, if you're a parent and you have four kids, you need to put food on the table. Am I who am I to tell you not to work for EA or not to work for NetEase or whatever? <laughs> Your kids got to eat. So none of this stuff is cut and dried. And I try never to apply blanket opinions on anyone or anything because every situation is so different. Again, people raising families strapped for cash. It's hard to fault them for taking a lucrative job that could help them and help their family, regardless of where the money is coming from. So Jalen, a great question. I, I've, I do feel like I'm dodging it a little bit, but at the same time, I feel like I'm answering it as honestly as I can. I personally hate Saudi Arabia. And again, not the people, the regime in Saudi Arabia. I hate what they believe. I hate how they've persecuted gay and LGBTQ people, women, how they treat women. I could go on and on about the issues I have with Saudi Arabia. But when you're talking about dealing with companies that they own percentages of, it's not so cut and dried. All right, our last question for this week's episode comes from... Someone who gets a question in every episode, and that is Kevin. Do you remember a moment where you were most hyped for a game, either from a trailer, previews, or reviews? I think most people my age who have worked in the games industry as long as I have, I think most people, if you ask them this question, and they, they don't hate Nintendo, I think most people would probably point to the debut of Twilight Princess. Uh, Matt and I have talked about it countless times on Game Face. We were both in the room when it happened, and we finally see the realistic Zelda game that everybody had wanted. But the reason people were so excited for Twilight Princess is because of something else. And that something else comes from Space World 2000, which I was fortunate enough to be in attendance for. I was there for both 2000 and 2001, and both of those Space Worlds tie into the story. So Space World 2000, Nintendo is coming off of the Nintendo 64, up to that point, its least successful console of all time. We're already starting to hear about the GameCube. We know it's coming. Um, we have at least an idea of some of the loose specs, so expectations are pretty high for what it can accomplish. And in Space World 2000, Nintendo shows this incredible duel between Link and Ganon. Um, that's supposed to be the GameCube Zelda. And it is incredible. I I remember seeing that and it literally just melted my little brain. I was just, I couldn't even comprehend how awesome what I was seeing was. It was undoubtedly the piece of media or the trailer that has made me more excited for anything ever in this industry. And this is what I'm telling you people, I am in my blood a Zelda fan. So when you guys say, oh, Shane, slag in Tears of the Kingdom or Breath of the Wild, it's because I love it. That trailer, still to this day, I still wish they would make that game. The Space World 2000 trailer. They still, so what, so let me finish the story. That Space World 2000, everybody freaks out. It wasn't just me. Like everyone's freaking out. Oh my God, that new Zelda looks freaking mind blowing. Fast forward to Space World 2001 and what do we get? We get the carpet yanked out from underneath us with Wind Waker. Now again, Wind Waker ended up being a great game, even a good Zelda game, but it was not what we had been shown just one year earlier. And so that was the big story now. Oh my God, now there's this Toon Link. And what happened to this realistic thing that we all freaked out over? So Wind Waker comes out, people like it. I don't think people were over the moon about it. People liked it though, and it got great reviews. 
But people still wanted the realistic Zelda. And then, fast forward to the debut of Twilight Princess, and that is why people lost it. Because finally they were getting what they were teased at Space World 2000. Even though it didn't end up looking really anything like the Space World 2000 demo, which to me was very disappointing, but it was a realistic Zelda. And because of that Space World 2000 trailer, whatever you want to call it, that's what got them excited for Twilight Princess all those years later. So it sucks we still haven't seen a Zelda that looks like that. That art style, to me, still stands out above the more realistic stuff that we've gotten since. Um, now they've kind of gone back to the tune shading thing with Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. I would argue that, you know, maybe a realistic Zelda might hit hard again. But if you're asking me what the one moment was, the one thing was that got me more excited for a video game ever, it was the Space World 2000 The Legend of Zelda trailer. All right, that's it for this episode of Ask Shane Anything. I hope you guys have a great weekend planned. I'm gonna just be plastered to the couch playing games. I'm finally gonna get to play this Final Fantasy 16 demo, and then I'm gonna get review code in like uh, two days after that, I think. So anyway, uh, it's gonna be another weekend of me locked down on the couch. And the truth is like, that's probably where I should be. Also, I should say this to people. I have finally started feeling a little bit better. After literally a month of just things not changing, over the last week, I've finally started feeling a little bit better. I no longer have to take pain pills every six hours like I have for the last month. It's finally got to the point where I can last like nine hours or so. So things are getting better. Thanks to all you guys for all the positive vibes you sent me through this. It has really been a nightmare. Talking about being depressed. Shane's been depressed for the last like month. This has just been awful. Like, you know, I was told one to two weeks and it's like been five or six weeks now. So. I've had to fight through this. Um, as you get older, you don't heal as quickly. I think you lose a little bit of patience. So thanks to all you guys for um, all the positive vibes that you sent me as I've, as I've gone through this. It's really good to see the light at the end of the tunnel finally. So you guys have a great weekend. We'll see you guys on Game Face on Tuesday.